0: Welcome to ALEC Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today, we're gonna be having a very interesting discussion on the podcast. It's probably closer to a debate. Joining me to cover the Electoral College, National Popular Vote, which are two things that are combating each other and in the discussion today and in the news are Ray Haynes and Trent England. Ray Haynes is a retired senator from California, and he's also the national spokesman for National Popular Vote. Ray, thank you so much for calling into the podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Dan, for inviting me on.
0: Of course. And to take up the other side of the debate, we have Trent England. He is the executive director of Save Our States. Trent, thank you so much for calling in. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. So for our listeners at home, for the format of this debate, we're going to let each one of our speakers begin with opening remarks. Each one of them want to make sure that they put out the facts of their case, make sure that everyone understands the foundation and groundwork that is in place for their arguments. And then after that, we're gonna go into the typical kind of podcast, open-ended, conversational style that every one of our listeners is very comfortable with. To lead us off, we did have a coin toss here in the back, and we are going to start with Trent England, Executive Director of Save Our States, to begin the debate discussion on the electoral college and a national popular vote, Trent.
2: Thanks, Dan and, and uh, Ray. It's always always great to uh, to be here with Ray. We've debated at, at Alec multiple times and other places as well. I think, and uh, I mean this this is a really important conversation because it it gets right at the heart of how we structure our federal republic of states and just how valuable we believe states are. The electoral college is one of the pillars of federalism in our constitution because it respects states as states and when the founders got together to write the constitution the original proposal was for a parliamentary system so that was that was the default that was in the virginia plan and the founders didn't didn't want that and they debated a national popular vote versus a parliamentary system and at first it looked like it was going to be one or the other of those options And then they came up with the Electoral College and it became this this hybrid system somewhere in between a a direct popular vote and a a parliamentary system that was actually very popular with almost all of the American founders because for the anti-federalists, it respected states as states and kept the power within the states. We didn't have a national popular vote for president. uh, but, but for the Federalists, it also created an independent executive because you know the nature of an office is tied to how the person who holds that office gets selected. And the way the Electoral College works, this two-step democratic process respecting states, it's not like a parliamentary system. The, the president is separate from Congress, uh, separate from, from other political bodies, and all this is really important. So the, the Electoral College is a part of our constitutional structure. And as I'm sure we're going to talk about, you know, national popular vote is a very clever way to try to get around that. But it would it would fundamentally change the fabric of our nation. And uh, I, I think it's very dangerous.
0: Well, thank you, Trent, for your opening remarks and for the opposing side. Um, Ray Haynes, National Spokesman for National Popular Vote, please.
1: Uh, thanks, Dan. Let me start with kind of correcting Trent's language, because Trent has a, a a way of conflating the Electoral College with the system in which the, the the Electoral College has been implemented in 48 of the 50 states. Right now, 48 of our 50 states have a what they call winner-take-all type law that awards all of the electors in the uh, uh, in that state to the person who gets the most votes from that state. That is not. In the Constitution. It was not debated by the framers of the Constitution. They didn't even consider it when the Constitutional Convention came into place. So it is not the constitutional way of, of appointing electors. It's just the method that the states have chosen over the years. What the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is, is another way of doing that exact same thing. What the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact does is it awards the electors of the compacting states to so the candidate. That receives the most votes in all 50 states. It takes effect when it, uh, when states equaling 270 electoral college votes join the compact. And that's how it guarantees the presidency to the person who gets the most votes in all 50 states. It allows a state to withdraw if the state reaches the conclusion that it's no longer in the state's interest to be in the compact. And it preserves what it, the values it promotes. Number one, it does preserve and protect the electoral college. It doesn't get around it, it preserves and protects it. And what I, what I say that because I believe the electoral college is an important institution. But there's going to come a time in the very near future, given what's going on in our elections, where a Republican is going to win the popular vote and lose the election. And then Republicans are going to want to get rid of the electoral college, and that's going to be a mistake. The Electoral College doesn't protect rural areas, it doesn't protect small states, but what it does do is make sure that Congress doesn't write election law. Article 1, Section 4 limits election law only to the states or limits Congress's ability to write election law to the states. And that's an important reason for preserving the Electoral College. But the one thing that the, the the biggest policy value, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, is that it makes every single vote in every single state important In every single election, you don't have to wait to be a battleground state, which is what happens under the winner take all law in order for your state to be important and your vote to be important across the country. That's the that's its major value. That's what I think is important. And that is what it changes. It preserves the Electoral College and it makes every single vote in every single state important in every single election.
0: Thank you uh, for that, Ray. Um, To put out all the clear uh, considerations that we have for our listeners, I want to make it clear that we actually do at ALEC have a model policy that does support the Electoral College. We're going to link that in the show notes. But Ray Haynes, who we have on the call today, he was a former state senator from California. And not only that, he's also a former national chairman of ALEC. So, what is the discussion, what are the thoughts going on within state legislators, in-state legislatures, maybe, on this discussion?
1: Well, I, I will say this. I, look, what, one of the reasons I got into electoral college reform as an issue was because I noticed in the 2000 election, when I was national chair of ALEC, that my constituents were being ignored by the presidential candidates. So there was no campaign going on in my area. So I started doing research. What could I do to change that? Well, I find out, of course, the Constitution says each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. What's happening today with the winner-take-all law is state legislators in the non-battleground states are abdicating their responsibility to make their constituents more important to presidential candidates. That sets the whole framers' debate on its head. The framers thought the Uh, If you take a look at Federalist Number 45, the framers thought that what the states were going to do was use their power to appoint electors to maximize the influence the state would have on the election of the president. When you have a system where 80% of the states are totally ignored by presidential candidates, that's exactly the opposite of what the framers thought was going to happen.
2: And that's what goes on under winner-take-all right now. That's really not it's really not correct for several different reasons. One is that the value of a state is not the equivalent, it is not measured by the number of campaign commercials that are shown in this state. And, and this is something that, you know, I, I think our, our politics become so superficial that people feel like, well, you know, if if, uh, if one state decides later in the process, right, one state happens to be more evenly divided and so that state gets more attention. Well, then that state matters more. The reality is, is much deeper and is only seen by looking at things over a longer time horizon. The, the fact is that both political parties are only legitimate political parties because they have support across the country in a lot of different states, right? This The so-called safe states are the foundation, right? And to, you know, it, it's sort of like... Uh, uh, I can, I can sit here in my work from home, you know, quarantine office and look across the street at a house that's being built. And that, that house has a foundation that I can see right now, but once the landscaping is in and all, all that is put together, you won't see the foundation and it was, you know, it's sort of like Ray is saying, well, the foundation doesn't matter, right? All that matters is the, the paint on the siding, because that's all that you, all that you can see, right? The, the electoral college creates these incentives toward having large national coalitions that drive our national politics, right? Rather than having a bunch of splinter parties, rather than having the system that we see in places like France or Mexico, where they actually have direct national popular vote elections for their president, right? And and it's just silly to say that, that oh, you know, Oklahoma doesn't matter. Oklahoma matters a lot. We get visits from People in national politics were involved in presidential campaigns. We, you know, I mean, it, it, the idea that because Oklahoma is a very red state right now, we're sort of left out entirely. Sure, we don't get bombarded with political advertising in October, uh, but that's not the only way to measure political importance. And I, I think it's really it's really critical for people to to see that. And the, the, the other challenge with what Ray is saying is it, the national popular vote is an effort to nullify the the electoral college. It was created by people whose goal was to abolish the electoral college, but who were smart enough to understand that they couldn't amend the constitution. I mean, that is that those are the people who wrote this compact. Those are the people who fund this compact. And then they hire people with different positions to go out and market it to different audiences. But the entire history and the entire organization of national popular vote is people who, don't like the electoral college. They don't like the role that states have in presidential elections. They want to destroy that, and this is their this is their weapon. Well, I'll say this
1: first of all: what Trent just said is just plain false. First of all, everything he said about the people who are behind this is just plain wrong. That's number one. Uh Number two, but I who wrote the contact? Who wrote the I contact? Right? Yeah. Hold on, a Ray. Second. Ray. Let me finish. Ray, I let you finish. Give Trent. A, give a I let substitute. you finish— I Let Let me finish. I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish because I wouldn't be behind it if it did the things that Trent or if the people that were behind it said the things that uh, and wanted the things that Trent wanted, because I believe in the policy values of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And that is that it preserves and protects the Electoral College. And it, it maintains that foundation. I agree with Trent. That's an important foundation. But the bottom line is, if you take a look at what it actually promotes, is it does preserve and protect the Electoral College, while at the same time making every single vote in every single state important in every single election. And let me tell you why that's important and where Trent is wrong on the impact of politics on policy. All you got to do is take a look at what happened in this last uh, debate with respect to the allocation of the ventilators in response to COVID-19. Florida, the quintessential battleground state, got 100% of the ventilators it requested because, as the White House admitted, Florida is a battleground state and is important in the election of the president. The other states got fewer than their requests because they are not. And that's not the only time where public policy has been impacted by the battleground state problem. Every state legislator knows what it takes to win an election. You campaign to every single voter if every single voter matters. If you only campaign to 10 states, that means 80% of the candidates or 80% of the voters in this country don't matter. That doesn't just impact politics, that impacts policy, whether it's allocation. When Florida has a hurricane, Florida gets thousands of bureaucrats writing checks to Florida citizens. When Oklahoma has a tornado that destroys the state, They say, oh, gee whiz, that's really bad, but you don't need the help all that much. Those are real policy implications to battleground state politics, and every single state legislator understands how that that impacts their constituents and why it's important for state legislators to figure out a way to elevate the importance of their state in the presidential election. That, I think, is the key Policy consideration for the state legislator. What can I do to elevate my state and my constituents' importance to presidential candidates in an election and therefore in the public policy debate that goes on in this country?
0: Before we move forward, I do want to hammer in on Trent. When you were um, responding to Ray, you discussed um, that his point was talking about the painting or the siding or something. Um, outside of the foundation. And, and Ray, you really hit home on the importance of how the 48 winner-take-all states have affected the Electoral College. I want to talk about winner-take-all states. Trent, what are your thoughts on that type of system and its relation to the Electoral College?
2: Well, the, the irony in what Ray said is that the reason why states have adopted winner-take-all laws is that it maximizes the power of those states. That's why states do that. That's why Thomas Jefferson came up with that in Virginia in the early days of our republic. So this idea that, uh, that winner-take-all is bad for state, look, the, the, and two states have made a different judgment, Maine and Nebraska, and you know what? Here's something else that puts the light to some of what Ray has said. NPV has gone to Maine and gone to Nebraska and lobbied to change their laws, even though they're not winner-take-all states, right? So this claim that national popular vote is just about trying to undo winner-take-all, there are lots of alternatives to winner-take-all laws. There's the congressional district method. There's proportional allocation. There are all kinds of things that could be done individually by states, or through interstate compact that would still maintain state boundaries. Right. But the fact is the people who came up with national popular vote, and I want to say this again, because Ray claimed it's not true. And, and, and that's, I mean, this is just an easily demonstrable fact. The the Amar brothers, Akhil Amar and Dick Amar who came up with this compact were, they are people who want to get rid of the electoral college. They want to amend the constitution to abolish the electoral college And they came up with the national popular vote compact idea as a way to get that same result without going through the hard work of amending the constitution. And I mean, these are guys on the left, John Koza, who is Ray's boss, adopted this idea, funded it, got the Soros family to contribute a couple million dollars to the effort. John Koza is a major donor to Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) He lives in San Francisco, These are all people on the left. They all want to abolish the Electoral College. And they're using people like Ray to make these arguments about states' rights that are easily demonstrably false because they're in Maine and Nebraska lobbying to change their laws just like everybody else. So, um, I mean, this is all about breaking down the power of states and breaking the constitutional system that we've had since the very beginning.
1: Uh, It's good good that... um Trent has gone to the argument ad hominem, which is absolutely first of all, the Amar brothers didn't come up with the idea. The idea was actually brought up in a 1971 law review article. And the Amar brothers actually opposed the current the, the the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. So they didn't come up with it. Soros did not contribute a couple million dollars. I mean, but the important, Jonathan Soros uh, contributed Torrell. two
2: million dollars, right? Ray Jonathan Soros no, no, contributed two, $2 million dollars. He's George Soros' his son. He did. He did <laughs> not. He did not. He contributed two hundred thousand,
1: which uh, out of the forty million that have been spent on this, you know, twenty million by Coza uh, and twenty million by Tom Golisano, who's a conservative out of New York. But the point is, is not the the ad hominem argument. It really doesn't matter who's behind it. You got to get to the substance of the thing itself and that is the substance of the interstate compact. Here's the, here's the interesting historical facts. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson came up with the winner-take-all law that was implemented first in Virginia in 1800 in order to make sure that Thomas Jefferson won the presidency in 1800. That's where it started. In 1823, James Madison writes a letter to George Hay saying, you know, I really don't like winner-take-all because the problem is yeah, throw away all of the votes of all of those people who didn't support the person who got the most votes in the state. What a, a, the better rule would be to have a way for your vote, any vote, whether you're a, a Democrat in uh, Oklahoma or Republican in California, have your vote cross state lines and join with people who agree with you and help elect President of the United States. The bottom line is my vote as a Republican in California is absolutely meaningless in this country because all 55 of California's electoral votes go to the to the Democrat electors. I would like to have a way to vote with the Republicans in Arizona and with the Republicans in Wyoming and with the Republicans in South Dakota so that our votes actually start mattering to elect the president of the United States. And quite frankly, that's what James Madison in 1823, which at that point in time, winner-take-all was starting to catch hold across the country. It was adopted not yet by a majority of the states in 1823, but by a significant number of them. And he said, I don't like winner-take-all for just that reason. So the the bottom line is there was a significant debate by the framers. And in the run-up to the Civil War, basically winner-take-all was adopted because that was the way each region could express its opinion on who ought to be president of the United States And at one point in time even as late as one six 1960 when you had 30 battleground states you still pretty much had a national election today you have anywhere between five and 12 battleground states and the elections what we have are regional elections based on regional issues we do not have an election nobody builds a national, a coalition. Republicans spend their time campaigning to the moderates in Cleveland and Miami, and they ignore the conservatives in the South, the Midwest and the mountain states. And that, I believe, hurts the conservative movement. And I also believe it hurts the Republican Party. And I think it hurts the republic.
0: That does bring us to near the back end of our of our podcast. We gave Trent. uh, He won the coin toss at the front to start off. So I will defer to, uh, Ray Haynes, if you would like to take, um, the first closing arguments, or if you would like to take the second closing arguments, either go first or second. Um, I will defer to you on that, sir. Uh,
1: I'll, we'll do this true debate style. I'll, I'll, since he got the opening, I'll let him do the closing. All right. Um, but the, uh, I, I think the the question for state legislator, and this is a state legislative debate. What is the, what is the responsibility of a state legislator. Interestingly enough, you get into Federalist 45, the the framers of the Constitution gave state legislators three ways to influence uh, the national government. One of them was redistricting. The second one was appointment of the United States senators. And the third one was determining the method of electing the president of the United States. And what the framers thought was going to happen, what James Madison, when he wrote Federalist Number 45, and when he wrote his letter to uh, uh, George Hay in 1823, he thought state legislators were going to use the power that they were given in order to maximize the influence of their state on the election of the president. Because of the battleground state problem right now, 80% of the people of this country are completely ignored in a presidential election. I believe the Electoral College needs to stay in place, but I also think the state legislators got to exercise the power that was given to them with a a little bit of wisdom. Right now, the uh, uh, winner-take-all law in California, in Wyoming, in South Dakota, in the, the 48 states that have it, basically make sure that the battleground states of Ohio and Florida determine who becomes president of the United States, and they are abdicating their responsibility to their constituents and to their state. That's the question that every state legislator has to ask itself. What is best and what increases the influence of my state and my constituents in the selection of the president of the United States? All the arguments ad hominem about who's doing it, who's doing what, and who's spending money on what, that's all distraction. The key policy question, and I think it's a key question that every state legislator needs to ask themselves, is what can I do as a state legislator to make sure my constituents and my state are important to the president of the United States. And I think the National Popular Vote
2: Interstate Compact is the way to do that.
0: And Trent, for your closing remarks.
2: Yeah, thank, thank you. So I, I, I want to be very clear that, that I don't raise the history of the National Popular Vote movement as an ad hominem attack. I'm not saying that George Soros or Jonathan Soros are bad people, that John Coza, who runs the, the effort, is a bad person. I'm only talking about what they believe and it is important because it's important to cut through a lot of the arguments, especially when people start claiming that it's going to politically help Republicans or conservatives. When they when they say that to a Republican or a conservative audience, um, you 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 have to wonder uh, when pretty much everybody behind this effort is is on the other side. And I, I just I I introduce that information because I I think that. It's important to understand what's really going on here, and uh, and to, to see that I mean this this movement came out of Al Gore's loss that uh, John Coza was an Al Gore elector and donor, and he launched this effort because he was upset that Al Gore lost to George W. Bush in two thousand. So that's just the history. It doesn't doesn't mean these are bad people, but they do want to abolish the Electoral College, and they are using the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact to, to try to get what they want, uh, which is as getting as close to abolishing the Electoral College as possible. James Madison, it is true, was very enamored with the idea of just having a direct popular election. And when they, they were debating this at the Constitutional Convention, Madison brought this up multiple times, you know, he, he saw a national popular vote as something better than a parliamentary system. But in the end, he recognized that the challenge of a national popular vote was that you open the door to splinter parties, regional politics, all kinds of the, the, the sort of problems that we see in places like France and Mexico and, uh, and it was James Madison who helped design the Electoral College that keeps the power in the states. And while states have a lot of flexibility, um, the Electoral College was not created so that state legislators could give away their voice in presidential elections. And that's what the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact would do. It would, it would say to Colorado voters, if Colorado voters all vote for candidate X, but voters in California and the rest of the country all vote for candidate Y, then Colorado's voters don't matter because uh, Colorado's electoral votes would be given away based on the national popular vote. Right? You could have a candidate who wasn't even on the ballot in your state who could win all of your state's electoral votes if uh, if your state was a part of the national popular vote compact. So this it, it is a major change. It is a fundamental move away from the founders designed for the Electoral College uh, toward a system that very few countries use. Again, uh, France and Mexico being a couple of the big ones, you know, most other countries are parliamentary. That's even less direct than our system is through the Electoral College. So I just, I think that the system we have, while it, while it uh, doesn't make everybody happy all of the time, is far better than moving to a kind of a, sort of bootstrap national popular vote system to try to shift away from the Electoral College without going through the hard, honest work of amending the Constitution.
0: Well, thank you for listening to another episode of ALEC Across the States. I've been your host, Dan Reynolds, and we've been hosting a discussion, maybe a debate, between two people. Ray Haynes, a retired senator from California, who's also the national spokesman for national popular vote, arguing against Trent England, who is the executive director of Save Our States. Ray, thank you so much for calling in and for your insightful uh, conversation and debate today.
2: You bet. Thank you, Dan.
0: Yeah. And also, thank you, Trent, for calling in. Really appreciated everything you had to say today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks, Dan.
0: Of course. And if you are interested in having your idea featured or maybe debated on the ALEC Across the States podcast, do not hesitate to email me at Alec.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.